readers, and welcome to episode 21 of Lost the Plot, the Tinted Edges monthly podcast all about books. I'm your hosting, Harrod, and today we've got two special guests on the show. We're going to be talking to our friends Nat and Bernie, who are behind the Canberra zine machine, and they're going to tell us all about how to make the most subversive kind of book there is, a zine. I'd also like to note that this episode does have a slight language and content warning, so just be mindful, especially during the interview. However, before I dive in, I also wanted to say a big thank you to all my listeners. Lost the Plot reached a massive milestone of 1,000 episode listens in total last month, and I can't believe it. Thank you so much to everybody who's been supporting and listening to this podcast since it began in 2016. I've also entered my podcast into this year's Australian Podcast Awards. So if you like the podcast and you don't mind spending 30 seconds of your time to chuck me a vote, check out the link to find out below how to vote. Last month, we talked about book lists, lists of books we read, lists of the best books to read, and lists of books to read this year. Since that episode, Aussie bookstore chain Dimmicks has released their top 100 books, the choices were a bit limited, but my votes for my top 10 were The Time Traveler's Wife by Audrey Niffenegger, Slaughterhouse-Five by Kurt Vonnegut, The Natural Way of Things by Charlotte Wood, Do Not Say We Have Nothing by Madeleine Tien, The Vegetarian by Han Kung, The Sellout by Paul Beattie, Perfume by Patrick Suskind, The Three-Body Problem by Cixin Liu, The Rest of Us Just Live Here by Patrick Ness, and Tell the Truth, Shame the Devil by Melina Marchetta. And you can check out the full list on the Dimmicks website. And if you voted, leave a comment. Tell me who you voted for. In extremely exciting news, you might remember back in my book club episode, I talked about all the book clubs that I am a part of. Sadly, since then, a couple of those have fallen by the wayside, but I am still pretty active in two of them, the Asia Book Room Book Club and the Feminist Fantasy Book Club. Anyway, publishers Alan and Unwin recently ran a contest for a book club kit that you had to enter by talking up your book club, and I won! The pack came with 10 copies of a historical fiction novel called Into the World by Stephanie Parkin, and the pack, which was two massive boxes that I came home to at my front door, also included bottles of wine and snacks. Needless to say, my book club is thrilled. This is going to the feminist fantasy book club, by the way, and I will be handing out the books and hosting it ASAP. Now, I have to admit that I did somehow drop the ball on one of my favorite ongoing news items. Since way back in episode two, I have been sharing updates as they arise about the incredible Future Library Project. This art project is taking place over the course of 100 years in a forest outside Oslo in Norway. Each year, an acclaimed author will be selected to contribute an unseen, unpublished, unread by anyone else manuscript to be held in a vault until 2114. At the end of the 100-year period, there will be 100 manuscripts by 100 authors that will be printed on the paper from a specially grown forest of 1,000 trees. So, usually, I follow this project extremely closely, but look, I'm sorry to say that somehow I managed to miss the memo that the fourth author was announced last October. Turkish novelist Elif Shafak 
will be contributing a manuscript in a special cer ceremony this coming June, and it will be yet another masterpiece that I won't be able to read, unless, of course, I make it to the grand old age of 126. Now, there's not much to report for Books for the World over the past month. The two new street libraries I talked about last month are now both officially registered, so you can check out their listings on the Street Library website and on the Books for the World website as well. And if you're interested in making your own street library, you can have a listen to episode 9, where we chatted to the curator of the first ever Canberra Street Library. Our own street library has bounced back after the vandalism episode over the Christmas break, and we are already collecting new comments in our visitors' book, and we've also had a lot of donations of kids' books, which is fantastic. The only other update is that last month I mentioned the storytime pledge that I made last episode to read to a young person in my life, following the pledge by Alan Finkel, Australia's chief scientist, and endorsed by the Australian Library and Information Association. I pledged to read a book to my adorable cheeky niece, who is 22 months going on 22 years, and I am very pleased to say that I fulfilled my pledge. She wanted me to read her this very strange abstract book called Mucka Pucka Time to Wash Faces, which I understand is based on a TV show called In the Night Garden. Anyway, I read the book to her on two separate occasions, and I am now familiar with terminology like Ogpog. Look, however, a book is a book, and that's what she wanted to read, and I was very happy to read the book that I was given. In very sad book news, award-winning fantasy and science fiction author Ursula K. Le Guin has died at the age of 88. Le Guin was known for her Earthsea series and won the Hugo and Nebula Awards for her book The Left Hand of Darkness. To commemorate Le Guin, my fantasy book club will actually be reading The Left Hand of Darkness, so you are more than welcome to join me in reading this book, and I would love to hear your thoughts if you do. 2018 is the 50th anniversary of the Man Booker Prize, and there are a lot of things going on to celebrate this milestone of the award for Best Original Novel Written in English. The award, which originally was limited to the UK and Commonwealth countries, has now extended to any English language novel, including those published in America. One announcement has been that the Man Booker 50 Challenge, an Instagram competition to see how many Man Booker Prize winners entrants can read before May 2018. So this has been announced. The prize is a trip to the Man Book of 50 Festival from the 6th of July to the 8th of July 2018 in London, although the prize only includes domestic travel. So if you're outside of the UK, you have to make your own way there. Look, I've only got one up on my Tinted Edges Instagram account so far, which was uh, Lincoln in the Bardo, but I'm going to try to see if I can squeeze in some more winners before May. The details of the contest are in the show notes, and it is not too late to join. So we still have a long way to go before the Man Booker long list is announced, the 24th of July, but there will be a lot going on in the meantime. So over January, Booktopia also ran its public vote for Australia's favourite authors. Every year, this vote is conducted in heats, and all the top authors are whittled down to a list of 10. Now... Not to sound like a negative Nancy and to fly in the face of democracy, but I'm not sure that the top 10 winners would have been my choice. 
And look, I did vote in some of the rounds, but I did not vote in all of the rounds. So, you know, I wasn't participating fully in the democratic, in the democratic process. Anyway, so the winners were, in descending order, Diane Morrissey, Andy Griffiths, Monica McKerney, John Marsden, Bryce Courtney, Tim Winton, and Doe, Mem Fox, Leanne Moriarty, and the winner, Matthew Riley. Did you vote? I'd love to know who your favorite Aussie authors are. Now, there was a very exciting rare book discovery in January, which gave some fascinating insights into what kind of books pirates like to read. 16 pieces of paper discovered hidden in a cannon on Blackbeard the Pirate's flagship, which was called Queen Anne's Revenge, and was submerged for 300 years. These 16 pieces of paper turned out to be fragments from a first edition copy of Edward Cook's A Voyage to the South Sea and Round the World, performed in the years 1708, 1709, 1710, and 1711. That is a long title. Anyway, perhaps, unsurprisingly, um, pirates turned out to be interested in sea voyages. I've got lots of news about new and upcoming book releases, but I have to start with the book that set the internet on fire. Fire and Fury Inside the Trump White House by Michael Wolff is a scathing insight into how the USA's current president operates. This book has caused a lot of controversy, not least of which um, are the questions that are arising about the book's factual accuracy. However, despite this, the book was an instant bestseller, selling out in many shops within an hour of its release. The profitability of this book is without question, so it was a huge shock when the news broke that WikiLeaks had published the book in its entirety for free and people can access it on the website. Now, it wasn't clear whether WikiLeaks was trying to undermine sales of the book by providing it for free, or whether it was simply sharing the text so people who couldn't get a copy due to it selling out could read it. Not clear, but either way, it only further obscures the goals of this website that publishes secret information, news leaks, and classified media, which is provided by anonymous sources. So the publication of Fire and Fury had another unexpected impact on the book industry. A different book called Fire and Fury, The Allied Bombing of Germany 1942 to 1945, written by Randall Hansen and published in 2008, has also accidentally hit the bestseller list as people have accidentally been buying the wrong Fire and Fury book. Despite the fact that they do have different subtitles and different authors and also completely different subject matter, um, it has been a frequent enough mistake that a few people have actually contacted Hanson directly to either complain or to say they picked it up by accident and ended up reading it anyway out of interest. Now, the cover has been revealed for the upcoming fantasy novel by Raymond E. Feist called King of Ashes. The book is the first in his new series called the Fire Main Trilogy, and it's scheduled for release on the 5th of April 2018. It looks like a classic style of epic fantasy with secret identities, spies and assassins, warring kings and young boys who are the key to it all. 
Nevertheless, in huge news for fantasy lovers, or at least huge news for this fantasy lover, Tamora Pierce has begun a new fantasy series set in her total universe called the Numeric Chronicles. The first book called Tempests and Slaughter has been released and the series is a sort of origin story for Numer, who is a major character in her series The Immortals. I devoured her books as a kid, so I am very, very excited to step back into this universe. If you're looking for other interesting fantasy to read this year, I'd also recommend checking out the list of anticipated 2018 speculative fiction releases on the Fantasy Book Cafe website. There are some really interesting books there and you can check out the link in the show notes. Now, if you thought that was a good chunk of news about new releases, wait until you hear about the upcoming adaptations. BookBub has very helpfully shared a list of 2018 movie adaptations, and some of the ones that I am most excited about are The Guernsey Literary and Potato Peel Pie Society, The Bell Jar, Peter Rabbit, A Wrinkle in Time, Crazy Rich Asians, and Fahrenheit 451. Readings has also put together a slightly shorter list of adaptations. Now, one adaptation, which is not film, but actually uh, theatre, that I'm really, really excited about is an Australian adaptation of Alice in Wonderland on stage starring Aboriginal actor Dubs Unipingu, who plays Alice as an Indigenous AFL playing tomboy. Unipingu is second cousin to the late Dr. G. Unipingu, renowned musician and singer who sadly died last year. The play will be touring the East Coast and I am definitely going to try to go see it. Another exciting theatre adaptation which is coming to Canberra is The Curious Incident of the Dog in the Nighttime, which is based on the novel by Mark Haddon. The promo video looks amazing and it is only on for a really short time from the 27th of June to the 1st of July at the Canberra Theatre Centre, so if you want tickets you better get in quickly. Margaret Atwood continues to churn out the adaptations with her Mad Adam science fiction trilogy being picked up for TV. The trailer for the second season of another of her TV adaptations, The Handmaid's Tale, has also been released. Now, this is going to go beyond the scope of her original novel. It was an absolutely phenomenal series, and I am really, really excited to see more of it. The adaptation of Aussie author Leanne Moriarty's series, Big Little Lies, has also been picked up for a second season and will also be going beyond the scope of the original novel. However, however considering this book was sort of like quite... It was good. It was a good book, but it was a very suburban, mumsy story. Um, You know, there's not a lot of world building in this kind of sort of crime mystery drama. Um, I'm not really sure how they can go beyond the scope of the book, but nevertheless, Meryl Streep has been cast to play the mother of Alexander Skarsgård's character, Perry. But apart from that, what the story is going to be about, anybody's guess. In unofficial adaptation news, and sliding into our obligatory Harry Potter news section, a fan-made film about the origins of Voldemort has been made in Italy following a successful Kickstarter. Warner Brothers have okayed the film on the condition that it is only made available to watch for free, and they don't get any profit for it. And the 52-minute feature has had over 12 million views. You can check it out yourself in the show notes, and if you're a Harry Potter fan, let me know what you think. All in all, I felt like it was a pretty good production with good filming and special effects. It did look kind of a bit like they dubbed over the actors with voices that haven't 
Scottish accent. So that was a bit interesting. Anyway, it, I'd love to know what you think. Last episode, I talked about one of the two upcoming Harry Potter mobile games, and there have been ex- some exciting developments about Harry Potter Hogwarts Mystery. Photos and a trailer of the game have been released, and it actually looks super fun. And it seems like it's going to be even more involved than I had initially anticipated. And you'll be able to take classes, customize your character's appearance, including ethnicity. You'll be able to duel with other students, brew potions, and do spells. Uh, The game is slated for release this year, but there's no exact date yet. Now, another release I'm really excited about is the release of Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets in the stunning Tinted Edges paperback and hardcover editions in house colours that we saw the Philosopher's Stone published in last year. Bloomsbury have confirmed that the books in the series are going to alternate so that they'll look like black colour, black colour on your shelf, and I can't wait to get my hands on this one when it's out in the middle of the year. Pottermore released a really fun thing during January on their website called the Wonderful Wizarding World Happiness Generator, which, if you are a Hufflepuff like me, is simply delightful. Basically, you click the wand and the generator spits out a cheerful image like Mrs. Weasley's hand-knitted mittens, and you can keep clicking and everything on there is super cute and mostly to do with Luna Lovegood. It was also announced that there will be a new digital audiobook version of the Hogwarts textbook Quidditch Through the Ages, which will be narrated by actor Andrew Lincoln, who plays the lead character in the TV series The Walking Dead, and who also had a big role in the film Love Actually. Pottermore has also released images for the upcoming sequel to the Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them film, The Crimes of Grindelwald. Jude Law looks phenomenal as Dumbledore, and there are some clues that suggest that in either this film or the next, Newt Scamander is going to be spending some time in Paris, so I'll be very interested to see what the French wizards get up to. However, the elephant in the room that can't be ignored and the controversy continues with the casting of Johnny Depp as Grindelwald, which I talked about in the last episode. Despite J.K. Rowling's lukewarm public statement about the matter, that is, fans being unhappy with Depp given his admission to being physically violent with his ex-wife and Heard, Harry Potter actor Daniel Radcliffe has chimed in with his take on the situation. Radcliffe said that he can see how fans were frustrated with Rowling's response and mentioned the double standard that I didn't even know about. Apparently, after actor Jamie Waylett, who played Vincent Crabb in the Harry Potter film series, was arrested for growing marijuana, he was unable to return to do the last two films. Radcliffe noted that obviously what Johnny has been accused of is much greater than that. Now, there were actually quite a few literary controversies in January, and not just to do with Harry Potter. One very interesting one was a very public dispute between a model and an academic over the author of Wuthering Heights, Emily Bronte. Yes, that is what the dispute is about, because this year uh, is that particular Bronte's sister's 200th birthday, and the Bronte Society has announced big plans for the bicentennial, including nominating a 2018 patron. Their chosen patron is supermodel Lily Cole, and not everybody was happy with that choice. Academic and society member... Nick Holland has apparently quit the society in protest of this choice. 
Holland wrote an extended blog post criticizing the society, Cole, and even the writer of a play she was once in, and claims that Bronte would be basically be turning in her grave at this appointment. Um, which is a pretty big claim to make, to be honest. However, one of Holland's biggest complaints is, strangely, that the society is trying too hard to attract younger members, which is making him, as an older member, feel marginalised. However, this does seem to be a little bit at odds with his earlier statements about how he fell in love with Bronte as a university student, and I assume a young university student. Anyway... The blog post then goes on to speculate about the corruption within the Bronte Society. Cole's official role is creative partner at the Bronte Parsonage Museum, which will involve exploring and commenting on Bronte's creative legacy on today's gender politics and even creating a short film about Heathcliff, one of the lead characters in Wuthering Heights. Cole's response to the controversy was very succinct. And she said, I would not be so presumptuous as to guess Emily's reaction to my appointment as a creative partner at the museum, were she alive today. Yet, I respect her intellect and integrity enough to believe that she would not judge any piece of work on name alone. Zing. Following the gender theme, some damning statistics about representation in children's books have emerged following a study by The Observer. After analysing 100 of the most popular children's books in 2017, it was discovered that male characters are twice as likely to have leading roles, or even speaking roles, as female characters, and a fifth of books have no female characters at all. Villains were eight times as likely to be male uh, as they were to be female, and there was only one book in the sample of 100 books who had a sole female villain. And the book was Peppa and Her Golden Boots, which is about a duck who steals Peppa Pig's boots. Conversely, fathers were almost completely absent from the books or only appeared with a co-parent. And there were only four books in the sample that had fathers appearing by themselves. Another controversy was an extremely tone-deaf interview with Nigerian author Chimamanda Adichie. Adichie was being interviewed at the launch of the third year of the French event Night of Ideas in Paris, the interviewer asked Adichie if her books are read in Nigeria, and when she answered yes, the interviewer asked Adichie whether they had libraries in Nigeria. Adichie responded coolly by saying, I think it reflects poorly on France that you asked that question. Snap. Now, there have been some other book controversies that have been much more aesthetic in nature than literary. Maybe even too aesthetic. The internet was basically in uproar following an article by trend spotter writer for Flavor Wire, Alison Nastasi, about a way to display your books. Now, this way to display your books is by facing them backwards. So when you're looking at your bookshelf, you see the pages rather than the spines. Now, as somebody who collects books specifically because of the colour of the page edges, I do have a little bit of sympathy for this approach. But then, of course, if you arrange your books so all that you can see are the mostly beige pages, you are swiftly defeated by the practicality of not actually being able to tell which book is which. This then, of course, leads to the presumption that perhaps you don't read the books, but you just have them as decoration. And oh, Oh, how the internet judged. 
Flavorwire published a follow-up article listing some of the, re the reactions to this trend, and they were very, very negative. Then Mamma Mia joined in the fray. I've actually even seen this trend popping up on TV shows like Queer Eye, so I'd love to know what you think. Is it quirky to put your books backwards? Is it stylish? Or is it downright wrong? Let me know. You may think that that was actually it for the month of January on ridiculous book trends, but you would be mistaken. BuzzFeed Books shared an absolutely pointless trend of upside-down books on their Facebook page, which basically holds the books to the underside of a shelf using an individual elastic around each individual book. And look, I had a watch of the DIY video, and it looked like so much effort for really not a lot of output at all. And look... If you've come across any other ridiculous or amazing book trends, get in touch. I would love to hear about them. Okay, so I do have to share with you this incredible story about the Queen's bras. No, you did not mis mishear that. About the Queen of England's bras. So a company called Rigby & Pillar, which is a luxury lingerie business that has held the warrant also aka uh, the contract, to supply the Queen with her underwear since the 1960s, has had its warrant revoked after a woman called June Kenton published her book called Storm in a D-Cup, which, might I say, is an excellent, excellent title. Kenton is 82 years old, and the book is an autobiography about details of her royal visits while she was working for the company. She said that Buckingham Palace told her that they didn't like the book and that they would be revoking the warrant. And I feel like that that's actually a bit harsh, but apparently they revoke royal warrants all the time. Now, earlier I mentioned that it was 200 years this year since Emily Bronte was born, and that is not the only significant anniversary this year. That is not the only significant Wuthering Heights anniversary this year. You may have heard of a musician called Kate Bush, who has a song which is called Wuthering Heights, inspired by Bronte's novel of the same name. Well, this year is going to be the 40-year anniversary of the song, and its enduring popularity has led to an incredible tradition of this flash mob event called the Most Wuthering Heights Day Ever. The event will be returning to Canberra in July, and there'll be a special event for International Women's Day on the 8th of March at Gorman House. And if you want to get involved and dress in red and wear a black wig and dance, no matter who you are or where you come from or what you look like, you can. You totally can. It is also the 20-year anniversary of Sarah Waters' famous and groundbreaking lesbian novel, Tipping the Velvet. To celebrate, um, Waters has written an article for The Guardian reflecting on the novel 20 years on, and, excitingly, Virago Press has published a hardcover 20th anniversary edition. Now, there's quite a lot of library news this month, and plenty of it is local. Libraries ACT has released statistics about their most popular books of 2017. The most requested book was The Barefoot Investor, The Only Money Guide You'll Ever Need by Scott Pape. And I actually just got a copy of this book, so it, it's sort of an ongoing read style thing, so I won't be reviewing it for a while, but I do have a copy. Anyway, the other top five books included Light and Shadows, Memoirs of a Spy's Son by Mark Colvin, a book called Hillbilly Elegy, A Memoir of Family and Culture, 
a book called The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck, A Counterintuitive Approach to Living a Good Life, and Little Big Liars by Leanne Moriarty. However, it's not just keeping stats that Library ACT have been busy with. They have also been exploring how to tailor their services to better help homeless people who visit their libraries. Under the current borrowing system, people can only get a library card if they have a home address. Homeless people are also apparently often really reluctant to borrow books for fear that if they get stolen or lost, they won't be able to pay the library fines. However, Libraries ACT have called for tenders to update the library management system, and this is going to be an opportunity to implement a brand new system, um, such as perhaps allowing homeless people to sign up using the address of a consenting registered charity. They are also considering installing lockers so homeless people can keep their books there overnight, and they're also looking to register to become an Orange Sky Laundry Spot, which is a free laundry service for homeless people. I'm really, really excited about all of these ideas, and I will be following this story as it progresses. Another innovation I was really excited to hear about was the John F. Parker School Library in a town called Taunton in Massachusetts in the United States, which has installed stationary bikes. The idea is to encourage kids with a little bit of extra energy to come down to the library, pick up a book, and read it while they have a pedal. And I think that this is an absolutely brilliant idea. You get to exercise your mind and your body at once, and it's a great way for kids who are brimming with energy to be able to get it out while focusing on a book at the same time. Now, if you're in the market for some books to read, you might want to consider joining the Bowie Book Club, which was launched by the late, launched by the late musician David Bowie's son, Duncan Jones, on Twitter. Bowie was a prolific reader, and his website lists 100 of his favorite books. Every month, Duncan will be selecting a book to read and discuss from his dad's favorites. The first book was Hawksmoor by uh, Peter Ackroyd, and the second book is James Baldwin's The Fire Next Time. This book club is a little tricky to keep track of because it basically seems to be whenever Duncan tweets about a book, but the David Bowie website seems to be keeping a close eye on the books, so if you're a Bowie fan and you want to join in, I think that's probably the best place to look. So I'm here at Smith's Alternative with Bernie and Nat, two members of the Canberra Scene Emporium. And in fact, Nat is one of the co-founders. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. Hi. Thanks. Lovely to be here. Um, would you guys like to explain to our listeners what a zine is? So uh, a zine is a, it's like a do-it-yourself, self-published uh, magazine. Um, it can be something like a, like a comic as well. Um, and I guess it probably started in the 70s um, looking at kind of fan culture and there's, there's this term of the fanzine um, and from there it's kind of grown out from being uh, a publication that might be just about you know music or sci-fi or things like that into uh, something that can be a, a much broader range so we've got uh, a whole range of zines that could be uh, about music but also maybe uh, biographical uh, fictional um, you know, art and photography zines, um, comics, and just weird paranoid uh, uh, kind of manifestos is, is a popular one as yep. well. Yep. <laughs> paranoid manifestos, there's a subgenre I haven't heard of before. <laughs> and um, how did you both get into zines? 
Uh, for myself, uh, growing up in country Victoria, in the uh, kind oh, of... I grew up in country Victoria. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, so you probably relate to this story then. You kind of feel a bit isolated to the modern going-ons. Um, for me, it was the 90s, so kind of pre, pre-internet. pre um, So I ventured into Melbourne uh, one one day and uh, ended up on Brunswick Street in Fitzroy and ended up in a, a bookstore called... Polyester? Polyester. I was about to say <laughs> Sniss Alternative. Not Sniss Alternative. Polyester. Bookstore in Brunswick yeah. Street? That sounds like a gateway drug. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, at the time, it was the only kind of bookstore that stocked zines as far as I knew. Um, now you've got Sticky mm. uh, into Graves um, Subway. And yeah, that they just had everything, all, all predominantly zines from the US and the UK, but they had some Australian content as well. And yeah, music zines, sci-fi zines, uh, personal zines, which are my favourites, so like a diary-esque type, type zine, you know, personal confessions and I feel this, I feel that, and this is not right or that's not right. And um, yeah, I thought, you know what, I can do this. It's pretty easy to do. So I went home, did one, made the mistake of putting my address on it, <laughs> uh, distributed it throughout the university. Wow. Uh, and then, and then, free? yeah, for free, yeah. yep, yep. Uh, and then uh, received a knock on the door of a fellow who totally um, couldn't believe it that there was someone else out there that liked oh, a particular wow. band and felt the same way about some art and stuff like that. And it turned out well. That relationship. And you've been in a protection program. <laughs> yeah, yeah, my name's really not Matt. <laughs> um, but yeah, obviously I, I learned from then on. PO box is probably the best way to go. <laughs> and uh, yeah, and from 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 then I've I've made personal zines. I've contributed to group zines. Um, I've done music zines, uh, and then yeah, helped out. Obviously helped form the Canberra Zine Emporium. Mm. Yeah, and Bernie. Yeah, I got zines back in the 90s as well, 90s kids. Um, but again, this is another pre-internet phase where um, I was you know, a punk rock kid growing up and um, you know, we didn't, didn't have Bandcamp or iTunes or anything and there was a place in Adelaide that did mail order punk records and they also had zines and t-shirts and things and all these kind of really amazing subculture artifacts that you couldn't get at your local record store or you know, at the Brashes Hi-Fi or whatever. Um, and so I would uh, order stuff from this place, Spiral Objective, and um, you know they had zines as well. And I thought oh, I'll, I'll try, you know, some of those. And I think sometimes they even like threw in a few spare little free zines with their order. And so there was this really interesting um, element of people sort of being their own independent media. And I, I was quite quite engaged in politics and, and really liked that idea of um, you know if you don't like the media, you become the media. And there was one uh, zine that I remember getting that, you know, had all the kind of regular things like some band interviews and, uh, you know, gig reviews and stuff. But it also had this some crazy, uh, quite mischievous political things in there like, oh, so do you need a social security number? Here's Richard Nixon's. Um, <laughs> and another thing about, you know, do you want free Coke? Uh, and it was telling you about how uh, NutraSweet goes off in 90 days and there's a way of reading the barcode at the bottom you backdate it by 90 which would set it back 90 days and make it out of date and then you call up coke and say i feel really sick after after drinking diet coke and then they say oh you mean coke the soft drink yes right yes sorry (laughs) 
<laughs> Sorry, I'm not that hardcore. Okay. Uh, so. But then you can get free. Yeah, so it would be this way of kind of tricking Coca-Cola into sending you free Diet Coke, which probably not that desirable anyway. <laughs> but um, but yeah, and there's another great one that was an Australian produced one um, called uh, How to Make Trouble oh. and Influence People. Um, and you know, based kind of playing off that the traditional uh, self-help book, you know, How to Make Friends and Influence People. But it was all about these really. Um, interesting, clever, often really funny um, political actions that would happen in, in, you know, in recent Australian history or recent from, from the 90s. Um, and I find that, that really inspiring as well. Um, I guess there's also a second phase to my zine evolution where um, I would also get into like, underground comics. And so, you know, and, and now, you know, I'm an, I'm an artist and an art teacher and uh, one of, one of the, the things that spurred me into visual arts was finding these really interesting uh, self-published comics that were nothing like you know the mainstream comics, either in their content or in the way that they looked. Um, and in particular, there was uh, Mandy Ord's comics, who uh, was living in Canberra. I think her, she used to go to art school with my old housemate, and he had some of her comics with these really crazy inky drawings and she would do these comics about working at the civic pub um, behind the bar and she'd draw all the all the patrons as these really distorted mutant kind of creatures that that was so fantastic they kind of blew my mind at the time the first of all that you know drawing didn't have to be absolutely perfect and that it could be this kind of mix of uh, like a weird take on the world and a bit of autobiography and so that I think really kind of switched me on to uh, you know using visual arts and zines and self-published comics um, as, a, as a way of yeah uh, exploring the visual art side of self-publishing. Brilliant and so the camera zine important can you tell us a bit about what that involves? Yeah. Nah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, it came into fruition probably about 2012, I'd say. Um, I'd been introduced to the other co-founder, Kiara, who coincidentally brought Girls Rock Australia to Australia. So you got Girls Rock Canberra and Melbourne and. Sydney and Brisbane, uh, just a leeway there. Uh, <laughs> and I was introduced to her by a prominent zine uh, writer slash author, I guess now, uh, Vanessa Berry, oh, who's yeah. quite known, well known in the zine world. And we came together because we felt that there wasn't anywhere in Canberra that stocked zines or, you know, provided that opportunity to meet and make zines and stuff like that and yeah it just kind of evolved from from from, from us too we we made some zines together we started using you know social media like facebook reaching out we got involved um, with a couple of events the you are here event pretty much put us on the map and mm. and i think probably brought you and pete in yeah, if, I think if memory serves. We first met you when you put on that first uh, zine fair for the UR Here Festival up in that old um, area where Impact Records used to be years ago. Mm. And we met you and Kiara and Pete and I. Um, we're also, you know, we've been 
you know, in the punk sort of scene since the 90s, in and out, making zines. And we had a stall there and just met Nat and Chiara. And I think you guys were just keen on connecting with other yeah. zine makers in Canberra. Yeah. And just had a few more meetups and just helping organise you know the next event and the next event and yeah. very yeah, very casual just bringing people together who have that common interest and sharing ideas and resources who has a long arm stapler ah! <laughs> <laughs> uh, and um, yeah we just kind of kept it alive since then mm. um, somehow somehow <laughs> so you started the Canberra Zine Emporium how did the Canberra Zine Machine come to life? So it's something that I'd had in the back of my mind for a while. I'd seen via, you know, by the internet, uh, predominantly American um, kind of independent DIY spaces that would have a vending machine that would sell the work. And I, was, I always thought that's such a good idea because you just pop it in there. You don't really have to look after it. Just obviously make sure it's stocked, but it's there doing doing its things quite kitsch as well, having a vending machine. and. I think I brought it up at one of our very casual get-togethers and someone mentioned that Arts ACT do grants for these types of things. So we thought, well, let's give it a shot. Uh, put together an application, liaised with quite a lot of uh, uh, art organisations like uh, Tuggeranong Arts Centre, uh, Belconnen Arts Centre, Goldman House Mangalo, uh, who else? Uh, Old Parliament House. And we put together the idea that if we got funding for this vending machine, not only would we, you know, recondition it, make it sexy, uh, but we'd also tour the vending machine to these places and also have workshops, so get people involved, so they can stock their own zines within the vending machine as well. And yeah, uh, push come to shove, it, it did happen. I, I believe there was a bit of a debate whether they, we were going to receive the money or not. Is it art? Isn't it art? Blah, blah, blah. All that kind of jazz. But they, they gave it a shot. And um, yeah, it, it for I think it was about six months, we, mm. we, we kind of toured around the ACT. So it was predominantly, well, it was. It was a condition that was for ACT and kind of, you know, surrounding yeah, areas. surrounding area uh, practitioners, and the, all money raised uh, would go back to the back to that artist, and it was fabulous. And I can give you one example, something that really kind of stood out to me is you know, we do workshops for children, we do workshops for adults, but with the children, there was one group, there was one one fellow who loved Minecraft, loved Minecraft, so wrote about a zine about loving Minecraft photocopied it, his mum brought it in, we, we stopped it in the machine, did a workshop at the next place, this girl read that zine and went, I hate Minecraft, and wrote a counter zine, <laughs> <laughs> which is about, I mean, that's what it's all about, you know, response, yeah. so, oh, yeah, did and stop them side by side, <laughs> yeah, we did for a while, actually, <laughs> uh, it would have been great to have brought these two together, but it would have been quite a lot of fun, for everyone. <laughs> exactly, yeah, two for one, yeah. <laughs> both sides of the story, but, um, yeah, and then, well, once that kind of finished, because obviously it's a twerk, it's a, a six-month kind of program. Um, we had conversations with 
uh, the folks down at New Acton who, who stopped, who's had the machine there. But the machine's also been to Sydney. It was at the other World Scene Fair. It also went up to Queensland. Now, I was away when this happened, but it went up to Queensland, Bernie? Yeah, it was up at um, Childers for a, a big festival there and had toured around um, to several kind of different uh, regional art spaces. So, and the, the machine is quite big, isn't it? It's like a, like a, yeah. like a soft drink sort of vending machine, yeah. like snack vending machine. Snack. So how did you get it up there? So we, we had to courier it up there at, wow. at great expense. <laughs> um, so it wasn't Pete driving in the No, <laughs> I mean that's the main thing with it. Like we'd love to get it around a bit more often but it's just a pain in the ass yeah. to move. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, we were, we were able to send it up and then we, we teamed up with um, Jeremy Staples who yeah. runs the uh, Zine and Comics Symposium, I think that's the correct uh, event. Yep. And so he was he was creating this whole exhibition around zine and comic culture and, and do-it-yourself culture and he really wanted the, the zine machine to be a part of it. So he sent up the machine and a whole bunch of Canberra zines to, to stock with it and he basically took it around Queensland to all these different spots um, which was fantastic and you had you know little images coming from different you know people around Queensland you know taking their photos of um, getting stuff out of the zine machine yeah and so it, it uh, so for a while Canberra was out was without a zine machine and eventually we kind of we got it back because we had a, a stockpile of zines and nowhere to, <laughs> to put them but then in the meantime Jeremy had a couple of last exhibitions that he wanted to go to. So he made a replica of the zine machine. He got the colours matched and everything got... It, so he basically cloned it. He, he cloned, cloned it. the machine. <laughs> and so he did that, completed his, um, his exhibition schedule, and then came back and gifted us this second zine machine. So now we've got two. <laughs> <laughs> which, is, which is really great, but um, we just need more places to, to host it and um, more, more zines to put in, but so it's fantastic. for my listeners, if anybody wants to host a zine machine, mm. get in touch. If you've got a great venue, you know, somewhere where people come in and they're going to be interested in putting two bucks for a, uh, a little zine. Yeah, a little like, locally made. Yeah, for you know, some local content, we'd love to hear from people. And we should probably stress it's an old school vending machine, so it's not like one where electricity where you plug in, it's the old school, you put the coin in, you turn the dial, you feel the rotation, you hear the zine drop, you reach your hand in, you pull out the zine, sometimes you pull out two zines. Yes. Sometimes it's a clunk and nothing happens. Sometimes, yeah, sometimes you won't get a zine, but yeah, that's all part of the fun. What an experience. Um, and so at, at this stage, where are the zine machines located if people want to go check them out? So, zine machine number one is currently in the ANU pop-up space, which is their new little... Uh, no, that's zine machine number two. Oh, zine machine number two. That's the duplicate. That's, that's, that's the clone. That's the clone. The clone. Um, the son of. <laughs> or, son of no, no, or daughter or, you know. Daughter. Yes. Yep. And um, <laughs> so it, that, it's there for now. And who knows where it will be, uh, you know, in the next month. Um, we've got another one which is at uh, CIT, which is where I teach visual arts, and um, 
we're looking for an, another home for that one, but in the meantime, I'm going to um, get my students to put some um, some you know handmade prints in there and put it in the uh, in the student area. Um, but that one also, we're hoping we can get that over to Wagga Wagga for the halfway print fest uh, in a few weeks because um, there's a big zine, zine fair going on there. So. You know, we're, we're happy to let, let the machines travel far and wide, and they're old enough to, to travel uh, unaccompanied now. Yes, so, yes, time to um, let go. Yeah, we've, we've, we've let go. We're happy just to, to let them, you know, Move send out, postcards back. And house, pay their own rent. That's right. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> so, I guess if, if people who are listening who've never made a scene before and not really quite sure where to start and what it's about, what kind of advice would you give to people who are thinking about branching out and making their own scene? Often, look, I, I think that you know, people end up with all these creative ideas that swim around in their head for ages and they never do anything with them. And I think that often like something like a zine which is really lo-fi easy to produce it's just a quick and easy way of going yeah I'm gonna do it I'm gonna do it now I'm gonna get it out there you know it's just just fucking do it yeah and so zines low-hanging creative fruit yes yes <laughs> that's yes. right and you know as a visual artist like, I can um, you know brew my ideas for ages and maybe work it into a, a large-scale drawing or a print of some sort and that might you know, take me quite a while to kind of develop that. Mm. But I can do a zine that I might just be doing in little bits and pieces. It doesn't have to be amazing materials. It doesn't have to be on amazing paper. But it's something that I can get out with a sense of immediacy. Sometimes it can be with a sense of urgency if you're yeah. wanting to respond to a, like a political issue or something and you want it to be out there next week. Mm. Um, so I think it's a really good opportunity to just get an idea out there without necessarily having to you know have it as the most highly produced and refined thing in the world and it i've made one before all you need is a piece of a3 paper and a pencil yeah. that's it like, that is it you know if yep. you don't even like to write you can just cut out stuff mm -hmm. and stick, stick it on there and yeah. go to collage yeah yeah definitely i mean i've if, if someone does require like a visual guide, like they want to make an A3 zine and fold it down into a, a little, you know, magazine that you can kind of flick through, or an A4, fold it down. I, I strongly recommend. Um, there's an online group called We Make Zines, who are a very welcoming group, and they actually have a tab called Zines 101. Oh, brilliant. Just a, a visual guide on how to make one of those little A4, A3 zines, turn it into a into a little magazine and you're quite right all you need pencil pen and your imagination and that's it um, one thing I also take into consideration when making a zine is they say think about your audience I don't <laughs> it's I'm self gratification I'm doing it for me uh, I'm getting it out as just like you said and that's one of the things that I really enjoy about zines it's often mm. you know you're really kind of having a, an intimate look in somebody else's head mm -hmm. you know as they are um, you know, often putting out quite intimate things. Yes. Um, you know, sometimes people make zines anonymously yes. as a way of just expressing themselves in a way that they might not want to, uh, you know, do in other ways, or they don't want to talk to their family about. But they're really happy to start mm. a conversation through through zine making. Yeah. Yeah. The other 
good point I'll make for perhaps the, the visual arts side of things is that making a zine, it's a really uh, transportable way of showing your art. So instead of waiting for your next you know, gallery exhibition or waiting for you know, someone else to approach you or a publisher or something, just having a zine where you can show some of your artworks and images, it's, a, it's like a little travelling exhibition and you can send it away far and wide, you can give it away, you can put it in the zine machine. Um, and it's a really great way of making that accessible yeah. rather than having to wait for a gallery show and putting however many hundred dollars mm. on this particular artwork. Mm. It's cheap and easy and get it out there. Yeah. And you can put your contact details on there as That's well. It. And even yeah. for, for writers, like a lot of you know, grants and competitions and things that people apply for for writers, you have to have evidence of publication mm. already. Mm. And if you haven't been published, you can self-publish with a zine. Well, yep. that's it. That's it. No, and, and I mentioned Vanessa Berry before, like super good example of a zine writer who's who used that kind of medium to, to kind of... I don't know, refocus on her writing, which has led her to. I think she's published maybe three books now. Yeah, brilliant. Which is fantastic. And there's a couple of other folks as well. There's um, what's that science? Uh, he's a science. Uh, a sci-fi, yeah, possibly. And a George R R someone. I don't know. George R R Martin. That could be. Is that why he doesn't yes. finish Game of Thrones? Yes. He's too busy doing zines. Yeah. So he did, he started off doing zines, fan fan fiction. So that's how he kind of started as well. So yeah, so yeah. But um, in regards to kind of resources that you can touch upon, I mean, if you just go into your favourite search engine and type zines, there's lots that'll come up. But in Australia, you've got, well, predominantly you've got that the sticky shop down in Melbourne, which is just a plethora. It's like a cave <laughs> of paper goodness. Uh, and they also run a zine fair. You've got the Other World Zine event in Sydney. Hobart are stepping up. Uh, I think it's November, they've got a zine fair. Perth have got the mini zine uh, fair. They've actually got a vending machine over there as well. Oh, the something automated. They're, they're just popping up everywhere. This one's a little different. It's uh, it's tiny and cute and it's uh, electronic. So it's uh, it takes it can take card, I believe. So a little bit more. That's, that's awesome. Yeah, that's beyond 2000. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> the zine machine 2000. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Uh, and for folks that reside in Canberra, I cannot emphasize enough that it would very much worth your while to go and visit the Zine Collection at the National Library of Australia. They have a phenomenal Zine Collection. When people uh, donate their collections, it usually goes there or to Melbourne predominantly. Um, and it's great. In this little room, you're not allowed to take the zine out of the room, but in this room, you go through zines. I think they've even got some from the 1930s and 40s, like sci fi zines. Um, so that's when Kiara and I first met, that's where we went to Bond, and I noted that someone had donated one of my zines in there. So, being you know, kind of, you know, that must have been so exciting. You're like, oh, I'm gonna look at all these famous zines. Yeah, yeah. Oh my gosh, that's me. That's me, exactly. I've, I've had where I think someone had anonymously donated one of my old teens that was probably you know when I was late teens early 20s and I thought oh I really don't want that thing archived well here's the thing I, I dug up my zine I requested for it to be dug up from the archives she comes the librarian comes back to me she goes oh I'm afraid it's gone missing in other words someone stole it so there you go just go go there and steal right. your zine I'll, I mean, I'll continue you, if you're listening <laughs> National Library we are not endorsing no 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 not at all not at all <laughs> but um yeah it's fabulous they, their collection's just uh, 
awesome. Uh, and the Z, the lady, uh, the folks at the the National Library of Australia are really into zines as well. Yeah, and obviously our listeners can follow the Canberra Zine Emporium Facebook page as well mm-hmm. to keep up to date with what's yeah. going on. That's a really good way of keeping up to date with things that we're doing in terms of uh, zine fairs, but we also share information that's happening elsewhere around Australia. If you yeah. want to you know, zine call-outs, people yep. are after submissions. Mm-hmm. Um, and oh, and New Zealand as well. We oh, post yeah, stuff New from New Zealand as well because yeah. they've got a pretty good scene going on. So. And, you know, basically we're... Now that Kiara is in Melbourne, we're just a bunch of old bastards that are tired and work hard and other anybody else that can be involved and is happy to help out and be excited about zines like us, um, we're really happy to hear from you. Mm. Yeah, so um, kind of speaking of upcoming events that, that we will be involved, that the Canberra Scene Emporium will be involved in um, on Sunday the 18th, uh, the Mulgara, Mulgara um, a kind of crew of uh, DIY, uh, you know, music and art people, and they put on um, like shows at, at houses, different houses, offering safe Canberra. spaces. Yeah, yeah, and mm. they've put on um, a festival last year called No Front Fences. They're following up this year with another one, No Front Fences Two. And on the Sunday afternoon show, it goes over three days, but the Sunday afternoon show, they're going to have a bit of like a market day. And so we're going to be bringing all our Zine Machine stock there. The great thing about going to something like that is you can actually browse through it, whereas yeah. when it's in the machine, you can't yeah. have a so look. True. <laughs> but it also means that people can come and have a chat with us mm. and, uh, and you know talk about if you want to contribute something or if you want to... Uh, suggest a good location for the machine or something like that. So um, we're really happy just to meet up with people and have a chat about um, you know, what people might want to offer and, and really want to work with people. And so that's on the 18th of March, the No Front Fences yeah. too. And do we know where that is at this so, stage? Or is the location it's the, to the, be the, advised? The, the, yes. the Sunday, <laughs> Sunday one will be um, like a backyard show in Downer. It's going to be great concert like uh, lots of really cool acts um, and yeah like if you get onto Mulgara on Facebook um, they'll have lots of information and then when you buy the ticket they'll, they'll provide the addresses yeah, so there's a and I'll put links to everything we've talked about in the oh, show notes oh awesome. cool cool, cool, yeah. cool yeah brilliant well thank you so much Bernie and Nat Thank you. Zine experiences, and hopefully we've you know inspired some young enthusiastic DIY crafters to to get on board the zine train. Hopefully, yeah, it's lovely to have a a chat about our kind of dorky obsessions to people who are listening. (laughs) So true. I have a dorky obsession about books, and here we are, episode (laughs) twenty-one. Great. All right. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you. While everyone settles back into their post-Christmas routine, there weren't a lot of events going on in Canberra. However, I did manage to get myself to an excellent talk at the Gungahlin Library with local author Karen Warren and ANU's Professor William Christie to talk about another big anniversary this year, 200 years since the publication of Frankenstein by Mary Shelley. This was a fantastic conversation with Warren talking about her own horror writing, reading excerpts from her novel. Christy was giving lots of background information and an unflinching 
reflection on what was great and what was not so great about Shelley's novel. Plus, there were wonderful questions and engagement from the audience. So the year is starting to warm up though, and there are a few exciting events coming up. You might recall last year I talked about the 50-year anniversary event at National Library Australia to celebrate the publication of Joan Lindsay's novel Picnic at Hanging Rock. Well, the Macedon Rangers Shire Council has announced their own event which will be taking place at Hanging Rock itself. People are invited to dress up in their own Picnic at Hanging Rock outfits and participate in a community dance flash mob. Another dance flash mob. Anyway, it's taking place at 3pm on Saturday the 24th of February and if you're based in Victoria or if you're traveling that way you can still book tickets and practice with the video online to be part of Too Many Mirandas. However, like I wrote about after seeing the National Library's commemorative event last year, Picnic at Hanging Rock and the tradition of people screaming Miranda at the site romanticizes the fictional disappearance of fictional white girls while ignoring and some might argue even obstructing the actual very real dispossession, violence towards, and massacres of Aboriginal people in rural Victoria. Another event coming up is the former Senator Jackie Lambie is going to be speaking at ANU on the 28th of February about her new autobiographical book, Rebel with a Cause. Lambie will be in conversation with Alex Sloan. Famous for her grassroots and often problematic views and behaviour in Parliament, Lambie resigned at the end of last year after Parliament's citizenship crisis uncovered that she in fact had dual citizenship. Now, this is not strictly a book event per se, but the Enlightened Festival is coming back to Canberra, and every year the National Library of Australia, as well as other buildings in the Parliamentary Triangle, are lit up with stunning projections. It's a great time of year, there are noodle markets, there are events, there's lots of things to explore. It's on over two weekends from the 2nd of March to the 10th of March. Um, and it's gonna be a big year this year for the National Library, 50 years since the library opened its doors on the edge of Lake Burley Griffin. I have a sneaky suspicion there are going to be some exciting events to celebrate coming up this year and hopefully I'll have some more details to update you with next month. However, I do know that the 1968 Changing Times exhibition will be opening on the 1st of March at the National Library of Australia and it'll be reflecting on what was going on in the world the year the National Library opened. I had another big month of books and I managed to get through eight in total. The absolute standout was by far Terra Nullius by Aboriginal author Claire G. Coleman. I managed to read that book in time for Australia Day and it was just spectacular. It's the kind of book I can't really tell you too much about because I don't want to spoil it, but suffice to say it's a really interesting and creative take on the history of this country and its treatment of the native inhabitants. I also read a really fun debut called The Lucky Galah by Tracy Sorensen. This book literally has a galah as the protagonist. For those of you who aren't Australian, a galah is a pink and grey parrot that is typically considered to be a bit silly, but they are very pretty birds. And what a fantastic protagonist Lucky was. Set in the 1960s in Western Australia at the time of the moon landing, the story follows this quirky parrot and its observations about its owners and neighbours. This book is actually due to be released at the end of this month, so if you grab yourself a copy, I'd love to know what you think. Another great book I managed to read is Burial Rites by Hannah Kent. 
Based on the true story of the last woman executed in Iceland, it's a haunting, visceral read. The book is due to be made into a film starring Jennifer Lawrence, and I'm very excited to check it out when it comes out. The last book I want to talk about is The Power by Naomi Alderman, which is getting a lot of attention lately. It's a speculative fiction novel about a world where women suddenly gain the power to create electric shocks, and Alderman explores her vision of what would happen if the power suddenly shifted between men and women. I felt like this idea was incredibly creative, and I really enjoyed the historic interludes and kind of the biological explanation of how the power worked, but this book felt like it had so many wasted opportunities. The scene was set for all of these really interesting takes on modern gender issues, but Alderman settled instead for a beige 180 where women just started perpetrating the same crimes on men that men perpetrate against women. This was the most recent set book for my feminist fantasy book club, and oh my gosh, it got torn to shreds. Um, figuratively, not literally. We would never tear books to shreds. That's appalling. Anyway, readers, that is it from me. I will be back in March with plenty more book content. And if you want to support this podcast and help keep it on air, check out the Patreon page, follow the Tinted Edges Facebook page, subscribe to the Tinted Edges website, or leave a review on iTunes, and keep up to date with book news and book reviews. Thanks so much for listening.